another edition of the UK Law Weekly Podcast with me, your host, Marcus Cleaver. This week, we're going to be looking at the case of Serafin and Malkovich. The citation for this case is 2020 UKSC 23. And this week's episode is an opportunity to dive into the area of defamation, which is often a subject of debate. Here, the law has a tendency to adjust and readjust itself between two competing principles. On the one hand, there is the freedom of the press, which is important in any functional democracy. And on the other hand is the important individual right of protecting your own reputation. It is the responsibility of the law to do justice to both of these ideals, and that is what we will be exploring today. Now, often these cases will involve high-profile celebrities or public figures and national newspapers, but the claimant in these proceedings is a guy called Jan Serafin, who is a businessman. Meanwhile, the newspaper is called Novi Shaz and is a London-based outfit that caters to the Polish diaspora in the UK. Serafin came to the UK in 1984 and five years later joined a Polish social and cultural association called POSK that also operates as a charity. He would go on to become the manager of the Jazz Cafe at POSK's Hammersmith premises and also worked at a charity that runs a care home in Ealing. So how did he become the subject of an article in Novi Chess? Well, the piece made a number of serious allegations, including that Serafin had abused his position at POSK to award himself a number of lucrative contracts, that he had also awarded himself contracts for unnecessary renovations at the care home to divert funds that should have gone to elderly residents, and also that he had obtained unlawful and fraudulent profit from sales at the Jazz Café. That last allegation is especially important in the context of this case and was given the designation M4, so we will use that same acronym throughout this episode. Anyway, when the case went to court, the judge, Mr Justice J, found that all of the allegations relating to everything except the care home were all either substantially true in nature or did not do any serious harm to the reputation of the claimant. Furthermore, it was found that in relation to all 13 of the allegations, the newspaper had established the defence under Section 4 of the Defamation Act 2013. Section 4 sets out the public interest defence and operates when the statement was on a matter of public interest and the defendant reasonably believed that publishing the statement was in the public interest. With that in mind, the claim was dismissed, but the Court of Appeal overturned that decision and found in favour of Mr Serafin. They held that the Section 4 public interest defence did not apply, and that it was not right that the M4 allegation that we mentioned earlier was found to be substantially true at trial. However, perhaps the most interesting part of the judgment from the Court of Appeal was the criticism levelled at Mr Justice Jay. They even went so far as to say that the interventions were of such a nature as to render the trial unfair, although instead of ordering a retrial, the Court of Appeal sent the case back down to a different trial judge so that the quantification of damages could be adjusted. Before that was allowed to happen, Novi Chas appealed to the Supreme Court, and so that is where we pick things up. The first issue for Lord Wilson to deal with in the leading judgment was the open question about the actual fairness of the trial. In the end, not only did the justices agree with the assessment that the trial was unfair, but the lead judgment went further in its devastating critique of Mr Justice Jay. There is one sentence in particular that sums up this sentiment and is worth quoting in full. Quote, when one considers the barrage of hostility towards the claimant's case and towards the claimant himself acting in person, 
fired by the judge in immoderate, ill-tempered, and at times offensive language at many different points during the long hearing, one is driven with profound regret to uphold the Court of Appeal's conclusion that he did not allow the claim to be properly presented, that therefore he could not fairly appraise it, and that in short the trial was unfair. Instead of making allowance for the claimant's appearance in person, the judge harassed and intimidated him in ways which surely would never have occurred if the claimant had been represented. It was ridiculous for the defendants to submit to us that, when placed in context, the judge's interventions were wholly justifiable. End quote. Strong words, and the fact we are talking about a litigant in person is something we will definitely return to later on in this episode. But for now, we can add that those without proper legal representation will be much less likely to be able to stand up to judicial pressure. And so a judge in such a case should actually move in the exact opposite direction to Mr Justice J and be more sympathetic to that party. There are other principles that we discussed that help to ensure that a trial is indeed fair. During cross-examination, for example, the interventions of a judge should be few and far between as the judge should seek to remain above the fray, so to speak. Meanwhile, a good or reasonable judgment in the case overall will never be allowed to whitewash over any unfairness in the hearing of evidence. Finally, the fact that a trial judge cannot themselves comment on the question means that special care does have to be taken before deciding that a trial was indeed unfair. Up to this point, the Supreme Court and the Court of Appeal had been on exactly the same page, but they diverged on the consequences of finding that the original trial was unfair. You will remember from earlier on that the Court of Appeal simply remitted the case back to the lower courts to adjust the quantification of damages, but according to the Supreme Court, that was not the correct approach. During the hearing, Lord Reed noted that a judgment that results from an unfair trial is written in water, in the sense that it effectively does not exist at all. As a result, there should instead be a complete retrial. Before he finished his judgment, Lord Wilson did take some time to pass comment on the public interest defence that is outlined in Section 4 of the Defamation Act 2013. Prior to that legislation coming into force, there was a common law public interest defence that traces its origins back to the 2001 case of Reynolds and Times Newspapers Limited. The question that came up in the context of these proceedings was to do with the nature of the relationship that that old common law defence and the more recent statutory one. For the Court of Appeal, the two were synonymous, and so the traditional list of factors that were taken into account in Reynolds became a checklist in the context of Section 4. However, the Supreme Court disagreed with this notion on the basis that while the Section 4 defence does directly replace the Reynolds defence, the actual requirements of the law are now different, and so the two cannot be equated. The Defamation Act 2013 does not make any reference to the factors listed in Reynolds, and instead simply notes that regard is to be had to the circumstances of each case. In conclusion, it is inappropriate to transpose those factors into a checklist for the purposes of Section 4. For our own analysis of this case, I think we can start in the same place as the Supreme Court, and ask whether the trial was indeed unfair. To tell the truth, I haven't looked at the original transcripts in the same level of detail that the justices have, but from what we have seen in the various descriptions in both the Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court, it's not difficult to conclude that the conduct of Mr Justice Jay was unacceptable by any standard, and led to an unfair trial. 
It is not really clear why Mr Justice Jay acted in this way in this case. Lord Wilson was quick to dismiss the allegation of bias that Seraphin brings up because there is not enough evidence to substantiate this, but there is clearly something at play here. Perhaps the most disturbing aspect is that the barrage of hostility was directed against a claimant who was representing themselves. In those circumstances, it is to be expected that the individual will not be as prepared or used to court procedure as a qualified lawyer would be, but that is not an excuse to demonstrate impatience or annoyance with one of the parties. If anything, the opposite is true, and more time and care should be taken to properly judge a case that is presented in this way. One of the other notable lines from this judgment is the conclusion that, quote, conscious of how the justice system has failed both sides, this court, with deep regret, must order a full retrial, end quote. And it's not unreasonable to assume that there have never been truer words spoken in a judgment in the top court in the UK. Not only was there a failing in the original trial itself, but there was a failing in the Court of Appeal that meant the case never should have got to the Supreme Court anyway. It's not clear why the Court of Appeal did not institute a retrial after the finding of unfairness. It is common knowledge that unfairness will invalidate a trial, and the right to a fair trial is a human right under the European Convention. Perhaps the Court of Appeal thought they were helping to speed things up by simply remitting the case back to a different judge. But that only shows a flawed understanding of how the justice system works, and in any case ended up causing more cost and more delay. That would be bad enough if we were talking about a national tabloid newspaper and a rich celebrity, but this is a small newspaper with a print run that is at most in the thousands, and a local businessman on the other side. Of course, all of this is also an unnecessary and unhelpful distraction from the issue around defamation that we talked about at the very start of this episode. It gets some treatment in the judgment of the Supreme Court, but with everything else going on, this is likely to be considered obiter. That would be unfortunate because the distinction between the two public interest defences is an important one to draw. Section 4 of the Defamation Act 2013 likely owes its existence to the case of Reynolds and Times newspapers, but that does not mean that they are the same thing, or even that one is the continuation of the other. They are different, each with their own requirements, but perhaps Lord Wilson did go a bit too far in the bid to distance himself from the common law. Reynolds is still a useful persuasive authority, and although the factors do not comprise an actual checklist under section 4, they are still helpful when considering the factual circumstances of any given defamation case and public interest defence. Overall though, this case is more worrying for the inherent flaws that it exposes in the judiciary in this country. At a time when funding cuts are causing a rise in the number of litigants in person, this is a time when judges will be forced to play a much larger role in the upholding of the justice system, but it is proceedings like these that suggest they might not be up to the task. Well, thank you very much for tuning into this podcast episode, and thanks as ever to bensound.com who provide the theme music. If you are on Facebook, then do make sure to join the UK Law Weekly Facebook group where we post new episodes and also various interesting news stories that are fruitful for discussion, so I hope to see you there. Anyway, I'll be back with another case next week, but for now, bye!